0: Welcome to the Someone Somewhere Podcast. It's Friday, October 8th, and I'm your host, Nicole. This is episode 49. This episode is brought to you by hashtag FAM Me, my fertility awareness education initiative. Find all of my fertility awareness information on my website, www.learnbodyliteracy.com, and follow me on Instagram at FAM to learn more. I'm available for one-on-one consultations, and I would love to connect with you. I'm also really excited about my new course, Breaking Up with Birth Control, which is a three-month course designed to help you quit birth control and learn fertility awareness. I invite you to check it out on my site where you can find all of my resources. This episode is going to cover a very important topic, which is how to navigate your way through the gynecologist and health providers in general. Most people go into the experience of visiting a health professional with an open heart and a desire to communicate their issue to the practitioner. They're seeking help and to be heard. And because of the perceived authority of health professionals, that they had to attend specialized schooling, that they wear the white coat, essentially all of this creates conditions for patients to trust first and not to question their doctor. However, in healthcare in general, and in the for-profit healthcare system especially, advocating for oneself is immensely important to getting the help that you need and also avoiding unnecessary medications or treatments. There's a long-standing bias in medicine that has purposefully excluded women and all people who menstruate from research. And this has trickled down to our modern medical systems and into our interpersonal interactions with health practitioners. I'm often asked by my clients how to talk to the gynecologist, and usually we spend 15 minutes or so making a plan of how to best approach them with a particular need. Sometimes we have to have the conversation that the practitioner may not be the right one for them, or that they are disrespecting your boundaries or violating their oath to do no harm in some way. In this episode, I'll cover a brief history of gynecology and informed consent. Then I'll talk about the typical modern experience of visiting a gynecologist or healthcare professional and how to approach them about a variety of needs that you may have. I'll talk about the problems with medication. Particularly, I'll discuss how different types of birth control may cause problems that weren't fully disclosed to you when you began using the medication or device. And I'll also talk about other kinds of gynecology situations like pelvic exams, pap smears, and other interventions. Later on in the episode, I'll talk about what we can do to change this system, as well as how to effectively navigate the system as it currently exists. To roll it back to the beginning, gynecology's roots are in violence and exploitation. As I've expounded in previous episodes on this history, the criminalization of women's control over procreation and birth work presented a profound shift in the capitalist organization of work. Women alive in the Middle Ages, for example, had many options for contraception, abortion, and labor-inducing herbs, uh, suppositories, and other techniques. After the witch hunts in Europe and the United States, the marginalization of the midwife began, and this marked the beginning of the transition to gynecologists and obstetricians, a system of quote-unquote medicine controlled and enforced by men. But really, what this necessitated was unregulated and widespread experimentation on women and other people who menstruate, including genderqueer and trans people, during the 18th and 19th centuries. Upper-class and middle-class women were subjected to many dangerous or useless procedures, especially on their reproductive organs. But poor and black women were those who suffered the most. J. Marion Sims often experimented on black women and Irish women in his quest to develop new medical interventions and seek notoriety in his field. The 20th century saw some progress, such as the rise of modern clinical research and double-blind randomized controlled trials. But this progress should be properly contextualized. 20th century medicine was still extremely racist and classist, And as the influx of federal money flowed in to conduct biomedical research, scientists preyed on oppressed or institutionalized subjects such as prisoners, the mentally ill, poor people, and soldiers. As a result, most experiments were conducted without the full informed consent of these subjects. Henrietta Lacks' cells were stolen from her body in the 1950s to create immortal cell lines that were used in most clinical research for medical advancement. There were also two major disasters that occurred in the 20th century. One was the thalidomide scandal of the 1950s, which was prescribed to pregnant people and caused severe physical deformities in over 10,000 kids. Later, in the 1960s, diethylstilbestrol or DES, a synthetic estrogen, was prescribed while pregnant to prevent miscarriage but instead these babies turned into women who started developing a rare vaginal cancer. These are just a few examples of how, despite the narrative of scientific progress that we are fed, the reality is much more sinister. Because both of these cases were widely spoken about in the media, this helped necessitate federal drug regulation, especially the drug approval process. Companies that wanted FDA approval were then required to demonstrate safety and efficacy in well-controlled studies. This included regulation around securing fully informed consent of their study subjects and that advertising had to properly alert consumers of its side effects and potential risks. Informed consent would again take center stage during the Nelson-Pill hearings of the 1970s, when users of the first generation of birth control pills disrupted hearings about the safety of the pill that exclusively allowed testimony from male scientists and doctors. The term informed consent had been adopted in the modern lexicon, but it is a technical term that was first used by the attorney Paul G. Gebhard in a medical malpractice case in the 1950s. Informed consent is generally divided into three parts. one a patient agrees to a health intervention based on an understanding of it. Two, the patient has multiple choices and is not compelled to choose a particular one. And three, the consent includes giving permission to have the procedure or to take the medication. Together, these practices make up the backbone of informed consent. Other aspects of informed consent include that it should be freely given, reversible, informed, enthusiastic, and specific. Now there are many reasons and several historical threads that culminate why informed consent is still not really prioritized in modern medicine. The profession is rife with medical gaslighting and a distrust and dismissal of anecdotal first-person experience. It's all too common to visit a healthcare practitioner and have your symptoms brushed off as the result of stress, anxiety, or another nebulous mental health problem. Other times, you are dismissed on the basis of having the fluctuations of a normal menstrual cycle, a.k.a. a hormonal problem. And of course, this gaslighting always occurs in the matrix of oppression. So, poor women, and particularly poor black women, are dismissed as not being able to feel the pain they describe, or stereotyped as addicts looking for drugs. Gender non-conforming people are often ridiculed for their choices, or denied care and compassion for their symptoms. Underlying all of this is the same root, which is that medicine does not consider women, or people who menstruate, as an accurate judge when something is bothering them about their body. We also have to contend with the massive gaping hole in all of this new 20th and 21st century research. It's still very sexist. Still to this day, medicine rarely studies the potential differences between men and women, and still to this day the ideal research subject is a 154 pound white male. Women have historically been left out of studies altogether. A mixture of concern for the potential reproductive effects and the fact that the menstrual cycle hormones fluctuate so much it makes research more complex or so they say. It wasn't until the 1990s until laws began to require women and non-white people to be included in National Institute of Health Studies. Even still, the attitude persists that one can study men and extrapolate the effects on women even when this has been disproven over and over again, and that there are important, potentially life-altering differences in risk factors and drug responses between sexes. And we have even less knowledge on how this might affect intersex people or those with a variety of genetic anomalies. Lastly, we know through many extensive studies that women are simply not taken as seriously as their male counterparts when they use the medical system. They experience longer wait times in the emergency room, are more likely to be sent home instead of treated, and many people wait years to get diagnosed with fairly common diseases that present in people who menstruate. They suffer even more trying to get diagnosed with rare conditions. So this context is entirely relevant to talking about the gynecologist today, and when you get an overview of where their profession is rooted, you can understand how to better maneuver in these spaces. Now let's get into the typical experience of going to the gynecologist. The typical experience of visiting the gynecologist is not always comfortable. You're given a paper gown in a cold, pale room, told to remove your clothes, you're weighed and asked about your last menstrual period, and then you wait until you're seen by the doctor, or something to this effect. And when you finally get to see the doctor, you may get maybe 10, 15 minutes of their time And this is just how medicine works these days. There's usually a short discussion about why you are seeing the doctor and then a pelvic exam is performed. If medication or treatment is needed, this is when it's discussed and when the informed consent process should take place. A prescription is written and you are sent on your way. Okay, this seems pretty normal, like any other visit to the doctor. But it's about what happens in these short visits in the exam room that makes or breaks the experience of visiting the gynecologist. Even though it seems commonplace, there are a lot of things that can go wrong here. The first is that they just flat out will ignore what you are asking for. That could be testing, that could be inquiring about some symptoms that you have, or maybe you're unhappy with the medication and you want to switch. The first common scenario is that the doctor doesn't agree and doesn't cooperate. They pretty much run the whole meeting and control the narrative instead of having a discussion with you. The second thing that can happen is that there's some form of unethical treatment, such as shaming, coercion, or gaslighting. An example of shaming would be blaming your illness on mental illness or your personal behavior, such as fat shaming, even if it has nothing to do with your visit. An example of coercion would be a doctor recommending a pelvic exam and you declining, so the doctor saying, well, then you can't get access to the medication you need unless you agree. An example of gaslighting would be the doctor saying that there's no possible way that birth control could have any effect on your mental health, even if you yourself know that you are experiencing mental health side effects from using it. The best case scenario with a gynecologist is that they take time to get to know you If you bring notes or questions, they're there to answer them and to fully listen to your needs. And lastly, that they agree to perform any tests or procedures that you feel are necessary. It's very rare, but you will sometimes even find practitioners that will look at your fertility awareness charts and that actually understand fertility awareness charts. That's something that you can try if you're currently charting, and I've noticed that practitioners have a variety of reactions, so it really depends on the doctor but we can hope in the future that we train more gynecologists to actually know this information and respect the dedication that it takes to perform this method and, of course, the valuable things that you can gain from it. I also wanted to introduce this idea of the cascade of interventions. This comes from maternity activism. In particular, doula work talks a lot about what the cascade of interventions is in childbirth. It has to do with using various medications and techniques to induce labor before labor is actually ripe and ready to go. So the same thing happens in gynecology. In gynecology, there's also a cascade of interventions that occur, and this happens in a couple of different ways. And I'm sure there's more ways than just the ones that I've noted through my experience of working with people, but I've definitely noticed that if you go to the gynecologist, you typically get one medication. It's usually birth control. And then when you come back, because either it's time for a six-month checkup or you're unhappy with that particular type of birth control, you're either given another type of birth control and you're told that this one's different because it has XYZ difference, or you're told that you need a second medication. For instance, if you're experiencing depression on the pill, well, then let's set you up with an antidepressant and then you'll be taking two pills instead of one. The other really common scenario is when you go to the gynecologist and have a pap smear, which I will get into shortly, and the pap smear comes back with an abnormal reading. This creates a cascade of interventions to perform more procedures and tests like cone biopsy, the leap leats procedure, which is a procedure to destroy those abnormal cervical cells or something else. And so this is another procedure that's basically considered like the next step when you see the abnormal test result. You either get tested again or you have this procedure done. But really, there is a lack of informed consent when you start going down this cascade of following whatever the doctor is suggesting to you to do next. And so I just wanted to make you aware of the cascade of interventions and what that looks like in a modern medical setting. Although it originates in maternity activism, it's also a particularly useful framework for thinking about gynecology and whether or not these medications, like birth control, are actually necessary for you at this point. And speaking of whether or not these medications are actually necessary for you to have the same quality of life, many times people are optimistic about taking medication like the pill because it's often prescribed for reproductive health issues. So they believe that this is just the right thing to do to address their health issue. However, many people try these medications and then realize that they're hitting some sort of roadblock. So they're trying multiple kinds, or they're trying multiple dosages, they're trying different methods of ingestion, uh, and they all seem to have either similar side effects or equally bad effects. And essentially trading one thing for another is not really addressing the issue that you have. The problem is that gynecology doesn't actually have any other tools to offer you, so you hit these roadblocks with going to the gynecologist, specifically because gynecology industrial complex here is narrowly focused on prescribing drugs and giving you a few different device options for dealing with menstrual pain or yeast infections, and therefore there's no real discussion about root issues. There's no discussion about other body systems, or integrating gynecology with any other type of specialty medicine. And so this creates a chasm between someone who's trying to get to the bottom of their health issues and a system that can just only give them so many tools to work with. And so many times when people hit these roadblocks of going to the gynecologist where they feel like they're just not getting any assistance, I tell people to not go to the well where there is no water. This doesn't mean to not go to the gynecologist outright. That's a choice that every person needs to make for themselves. However, the point here is to not go to the gynecologist for things that they're just not equipped to help you with. And so I think the problem is that a lot of people, they only know the gynecologist as the only reproductive health doctor available. That's the only person that they know to go to about these issues. And so when they don't get any help from that person, they feel, you know, rightfully very frustrated, very alone, and very mistreated. By the healthcare system in general. And this is something that we have to keep in mind, that basically there's a limitation to what gynecology can offer, and sometimes those tools are useful, and sometimes those tools just delay you getting better, because they're sort of just masking the problem. Part of my birth control story is that I quickly had new symptoms that were disruptive, like worse migraines and nausea. But because the gynecologist had prepped me for a, quote, adjustment period, I felt that these symptoms would just subside with time. Unfortunately, in the first six months of using birth control, I actually just began to spiral downwards, both physically and mentally. So that was really hard for me, as I hadn't ever experienced anything like that before. But I also wasn't someone who took a daily medication previous to this. My doctor just wrote me the script. She didn't explain much about what to expect, and then they also didn't properly screen me for the migraine condition that I had, which I know I marked off when I you know, went to them, and this meant that I was probably using something that was far more dangerous to my health than I had even realized. So I say all of this to say that sometimes when you start a new medication, you have side effects and mysterious symptoms that pop up, but because we aren't properly informed beforehand, we don't know how to contextualize that sudden side effect or really understand how they connect to the medication. A lot of people want answers from their doctor about this. You know, is there a better option for me? Like, what else can you offer me? And honestly, even if your doctor tells you to read the insert and to be fully informed on the risks, birth control is such a commonly prescribed medication and well-known in popular culture. So people simply believe that, that you know that's not going to happen to me. And statistics may also be deceiving. So things that are presented as super rare may not actually be as rare as they seem in clinical trials. There are certainly gaps and inconsistencies in the way that birth control has been studied and who has been funding those studies around safety. So if you thought it wasn't going to happen to you and now something is seriously off or feels very wrong, just know that you are not alone. And it's very common to rationalize our choices, thinking that we won't be the one of the few people who's negatively affected by a drug or a medication. And so it's okay to be honest with yourself about that, and it's okay to disagree with your physician's take on it, especially if you're actively being harmed by it. You know, birth control, like all drugs, really has side effects. And some of those are physical issues, some of those are mental issues, and some are a combination or an interplay between both there are many different types of contraception today, and each carries its own risks and benefits. The problem is that gynecologists usually take a heavy hand at talking about the benefits and shy away from talking about the risks. This is a problem in regards to informed consent. It means that one, people simply aren't aware of the true risks and don't know how to make sense of them when they happen. And two, they may ignore early warning signs of a serious problem. Thirdly, medicine has understudied women and people who menstruate and how their experience of a life-threatening condition plays out, like a heart attack. They are more likely to underreport or not report their issue because they were never made aware that it could be connected in the first place. And when serious health problems occur, people go to a hospital and the gynecologist is not necessarily notified of the connection, making them believe that these things happen less often than they actually do. Despite all the new options, the oral contraceptive pill is still the most common contraceptive used in the U.S., with over 11 million people using it each day. Not only are people who menstruate using it to prevent pregnancy, they're also prescribed it for a number of off-label uses. The benefits of the pill are well marketed, but this leaves out the importance of discussing the serious and potentially life-altering risks of using this medication. Combined oral contraceptives have common side effects as well as more serious health risks. Side effects may include loss of sex drive, pain during sex and increased inability to orgasm, inflammation, chronic UTIs, weight gain, cystic acne, nausea, irregular bleeding or spotting, headaches, breast tenderness, changes in breast size and nipple shape, and clitoral and ovarian shrinkage. Other unpleasant symptoms of estrogen excess may surface. There are also well-documented mental side effects, including mood swings, depression, anxiety, worry, doom, self-doubt, and social anxiety. The most serious outcome of these mental health effects is an increased risk of suicide. Depression risk varies depending on the progestin used, somewhere between 10 to 50% for adults and between 20 and 120% increased risk for teens. All mental health risks are increased if you start using contraceptives as a teen. Serious physical health risks include micronutrient and mineral deficiencies, especially folate, which may help the body protect itself against sexually transmitted diseases such as HPV, hypothyroidism, bone loss leading to an increased risk of osteoporosis later in life, Premature ovarian failure or premature menopause, a decrease in insulin sensitivity or prediabetes, an increased risk of autoimmune disease because high cortisol levels can lead to gut permeability and result in an increased risk of interstitial cystitis, lupus, and there is a documented 51% increased risk of Crohn's disease for pill users. Risk of hypertension is increased due to depletion of nitric oxide, which is critical for vascular and brain health. Risk of deep vein thrombosis and pulmonary embolism, stroke and heart attack is increased three to six times. If at any point while using the pill, you have aching in your legs, shortness of breath or dizziness, stop the pill right away and get it checked out immediately. Breast cancer, there's a 39% increased risk if used for more than 10 years and cervical cancer, a 50% increased risk if used for more than five years. There's also a risk of idiopathic intracranial hypertension, which may cause headaches, ringing of the ears, and temporary blindness. Now, despite all of this documented information, we still have trouble getting doctors to believe us regarding these side effects of using the pill. Instead, we are told pretty conflicting messages. Some are told that these types of occurrences are super rare and not to even think about them, but if or when it happens to you, you're then told that it couldn't possibly be connected, or you're told that it's a normal effect of taking the medication. So talk about confusing. And this extends to other types of birth control too. So now let's talk about the IUD. IUDs are presented as a set it and forget it type of birth control option. You only need to get it inserted once, and then you don't have to worry about pregnancy for a number of years. However, Even though the pain of the IUD insertion is well-known, it goes largely unrecognized in doctor's offices and the insertion procedure is often unmedicated. People report a variety of experiences with insertion including intense and sharp pain which even causes some people to faint. Part of how the IUD works is through chronic inflammation in the cervix and uterus. Inflammation can affect the whole body. So IUDs have side effects that are wide ranging and not limited to the reproductive tract, although this is rarely disclosed. General warnings included in the IUD pamphlets include the risk of ectopic pregnancy or outside the uterus pregnancy, intrauterine pregnancy, group A streptococcal sepsis, pelvic inflammatory disease, alterations in bleeding patterns such as continuous bleeding or irregular spotting, perforation of the uterus, IUD expulsion or migration outside the uterus, ovarian cysts, anemia, moderate to severe pelvic cramps and pain, back and hip aches, pain with sex, and septic shock. Users may also experience headaches, nervousness, dizziness, anxiety, confusion, depression, mood swings, and erratic moods, including rage, as well as vomiting, bloating, breast tenderness and pain, weight gain, hirsutism, which is a stubble type hair growth, alopecia, which is hair loss, acne, especially around the chin, cheeks, and jaw. The IUD may cause changes to the vaginal flora, an increased risk of vaginal sores and foul-smelling vaginal discharge. Other issues include decreased libido, gastrointestinal disorders, jaundice, sensitivity to light, numbness or weakness, fever, chills, or other signs of infection, some people develop pseudotumor cerebri, or idiopathic intracranial hypertension, which puts pressure on the skull, resulting in migraines and vision loss. And death, though rare, can occur from sepsis, ectopic pregnancy, and infection. Other serious issues have been reported, but not yet confirmed through clinical trials, which include arterial thrombotic and venous thromboembolic events, pulmonary emboli, deep vein thrombosis, increased blood pressure, breast cysts, autoimmune disease, cranial pressure, hand-eye coordination problems, pseudo-seizures, tremors, memory loss, and involuntary muscle movement. After five years of use, your risk of ER, PR-positive ductal, and lobular breast cancer increases. Although the IUD is marketed as lasting for several years, most people discontinue use out of their own choice, and the most common reason for discontinuation is because of the side effects. If you are experiencing any of the above side effects or you are experiencing seemingly unexplainable or unrelated issues, it may be worth investigating if the IUD is part of the problem. IUD removal is often quicker and less painful than insertion and is sometimes described as a feeling of relief, but nonetheless unpleasant symptoms may be present such as cramping and fatigue, and this usually subsides after a few days. Similar to the pill, the effects of the IUD are not always revealed as being connected to other health issues, and this makes the experience more difficult. Similarly, doctors may suggest another kind of IUD, such as the non-hormonal copper IUD, as an alternative. However, the main mechanism of action, inflammation, is still the same in both the hormonal and non-hormonal IUD options. So this speaks to the illusion of choice that we often see in gynecology. You know, despite the differences between birth control methods, they all have some level of benefit and some level of risk. These problems also extend to other forms of birth control, such as the depot injection, the birth control implant, and the birth control patch. The most important aspect of this discussion is that your gynecologist believes you and the experience that you have using birth control. If you experience problems with the device or medication, you should not be content to just keep trying different ones without an actual, thoughtful evaluation of which one would work best for you. This is something you can ask your doctor about to screen you for risk factors, as well as discuss which method would be most gentle and would work best for you. And so now I want to talk about sacrificing health for the ability to avoid pregnancy or mask symptoms. You know, is it a fair trade-off? And also the question of access versus risk. Is there more to the story than just making birth control accessible? In my opinion, no, we shouldn't have to sacrifice one for the other. We're in this place where we're celebrating our autonomy over our bodies, but now that we supposedly have that, we're just told to shut up and be grateful for this progress. Like we've reached the end of the road and all the problems have been solved by access. And so we of course know that this is not true. And it's especially not true for non-white people. So the fact that since birth control first came on the market, it hasn't been improved in a way that makes people's quality of life better is a travesty. Distrust of women's experience and distrust of women taking care of their own bodies are central to why there is no impetus for anything to really change. And in addition to this, being pathologized or ignored by healthcare professionals leads people to seek alternative modalities of healing— Sometimes, of course, this is legitimate non-Western modalities, but this also creates a pipeline for people to be taken advantage of by nefarious or dubious entities. And this leads us to the question of, should birth control be over-the-counter? This seems like a no-brainer, you know, more access is better. But we do need to acknowledge that it lowers the bar by giving access without an equal amount of informed consent. So, as long as the pill is able to be marketed and is under the influence of pharmaceutical companies, it's hard to get people fully informed with it as a prescribed drug. So, the onus will fall even further on the individual to then have to seek out that proper information that would give them a balanced view of the benefits and the risks of choosing birth control. I'm going to switch gears here from talking about birth control to talking about other types of interactions that you may have at the gynecologist. The first is a routine pelvic exam. A pelvic exam is commonly referred to as a doctor's visual and physical examination of your reproductive organs. Before July 2014, there was no consensus around the benefits of routine pelvic examinations, though they are commonplace. So in 2014, the American College of Physicians issued a guideline that recommends against performing pelvic examinations to screen for conditions in asymptomatic non-pregnant adults. They cite that there is no evidence of benefit, but clear evidence of harm, such as distress and unnecessary treatments and surgeries. In 2018, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists published further guidance that pelvic exams should be performed only for, one, symptoms of gynecologic disease, two, screening for cervical dysplasia, or three, management of gynecologic disorders or malignancy using shared decision-making with the patient. Many reproductive justice advocates believe that pelvic exams are largely worthless and outdated and now have solid backing from these reputable health organizations. Pelvic exams can be a tool to oppress and dehumanize women and people with vaginas. If you go to a gynecology appointment, I just want to make clear to you that you never have to have a pelvic examination. You always have the freedom to decline and you cannot be denied medication or access to treatment because you decline a pelvic exam. Sometimes you might want to go to the gynecologist for a cervical screening, which is called a smear test or a pap smear, which involves some of the same tools and techniques as a pelvic exam. A pap smear is a screening test that is performed by opening the vaginal canal with a speculum and collecting cells at the outer opening of the cervix. The cells are then examined for abnormalities, including HPV. Similar to a pelvic exam, pap smears are always optional and elective, and you can decline to have one at any appointment. Never let a doctor coerce you into getting a screening that you did not explicitly request and enthusiastically agree to. Pap smears require informed consent, and your doctor should be able to clearly explain the benefits and risks of the screening. Screening is a nuanced and personal choice that requires careful decision-making. It might seem like, well, what's the problem with the screening test? But there's a few things to keep in mind. First is the fact of how effective these screenings actually are. Cervical screenings have not been proven to reduce all-cause mortality from cervical cancer and a significant amount of people uh, who are tested produce a false positive which starts the process of over-treatment when they do not actually have precancerous cells nor cancer. The leap leats procedure that is used to address the abnormal cells, should your test come back with an abnormal reading, can cause sexual dysfunction and other problems. A few other things are not spoken about when it comes to pap smears. You may experience moderate pain during the procedure, and there are some commonly reported barriers, including a past experience with sexual violence, having PTSD, having had a bad or traumatic experience with the smear test, or a similar exam in the past, having experienced medical abuse, having a condition like vaginismus, having a condition like endometriosis or vulvodynia, having fibromyalgia or another chronic widespread pain condition, struggling with body image issues or an eating disorder, or being physically disabled or learning disabled. So only you can decide whether or not a screening is worth the pain and potential trauma. If you get an abnormal result, you also do not need to rush to treatment, such as a cone biopsy or the leap leats procedure. You can wait and retest in a few months to see if this is an accurate reading and not a false positive. And folks with IUDs inserted may be more likely to get false positives, so if that happens to you, you might wanna consider this. And many times the body can clear HPV on its own and no treatment is actually needed. So these are just a few considerations that are not presented to you when you visit the gynecologist for a pap smear. This question comes up a lot. Are female gynecologists the answer? Signs point to no. Even though most gynecologists are women, we still have to contend with the fact that gynecology and obstetrics were created specifically for the purposes of male domination in the menstrual and birthing space. And so the medical schools they go to, the textbooks they learn from, the doctors they study under, all have a role to play in perpetuating these belief systems and rooted taboos about women's ability to think for themselves. Even with so many women in the field, we are still dealing with the belief that women should be told about their bodies and told what is and isn't okay or acceptable. We still have women OBGYNs who gaslight their patients, Violate their oath of do no harm and who overprescribe birth control instead of actually investigating their patients needs women in gynecology tend to be well resourced and white, which also creates disparities around appropriate cultural care and the opportunity to create genuine trust between patient and doctor. Acknowledging that more women in gynecology and obstetrics won't fix the problem exposes the contradictions of feminist progress and how white feminism has co-opted and controlled the entire feminist narrative. We cannot simply girl boss our way out of this problem because patriarchy is deeply rooted in this profession and in medicine at large. So here's a quick and simple guide to talking to your gynecologists. You may be visiting them to talk about birth control or family planning, to get a screening, to discuss problems of infertility, or to discuss a reproductive health issue you're struggling with. No matter what the issue is, speaking with your doctor assertively maximizes the chances of you getting the most out of the interaction and to not waste your precious time so you can focus on getting better. Number one, pre-write out your notes, including a goal for the visit. It helps to have clear objectives for your visit, especially if something in particular is happening to you. This also helps you take control over the appointment from the provider, who may have sort of a pre-made script of their own for the appointment. So this forces them to slow down and actually think about the discussion with you. Number two, frame your questions as questions, but frame demands as demands. If you need guidance because you don't understand something, it's appropriate to ask. If you need a certain kind of medication or treatment, framing your needs as a demand shows urgency and that you are confident, allowing you to get your needs met. 3. Advocate for individualized care. An example of this is that pill supposedly doesn't make you gain weight, right? But you've noticed that you've gained weight on the pill. Yet your doctor says it's unrelated. You should be comforted by the fact that what they have to say about it doesn't really matter because your lived experience is valuable and valid, despite there being evidence to the contrary. There is not a one-size-fits-all solution to anything in life, and gynecology is no exception. So advocating for individualized care that takes into account your unique factors is really useful to getting better faster. Number four, don't go looking for info that they will not provide. This is a tough one. Because gynecologists are considered the only resource on reproductive health, it can seem very defeating when your gynecologist doesn't help you figure out the issue and instead suggest, you know, using pharmaceuticals or something. There are things that the doctor is really useful for, but there are other things that they simply are not equipped to provide. Many times this means that they simply aren't thinking about you as a whole body. They are thinking about you only in terms of their specialization, the reproductive system and so they tend to have trouble contextualizing the reproductive system in the whole body. So you need to be able to discern when the gynecologist is a helpful resource and when they can do absolutely nothing for you. Number five, remember you can always say no. You can always leave. You can always bring a friend, a doula, or an advocate. This one is the most important one on this list. No is a complete sentence. You only have to visit the gynecologist out of your own choice and free will to do so. If you feel uncomfortable in an appointment, you never have to stay there to appease other people around you. You never have to agree to medication or procedures in exchange for the treatment that you're seeking. And you always have the option to walk out. And number six. Lastly, I just want to make you aware that your doctor works for you, not the other way around. You can fire your doctor if you are being dismissed. Full stop. You have a right to compassionate care that actually helps you get better and if your practitioner is getting in the way of that, it's time to move on. So I hope all of these tips can help you navigate your way through a gynecology appointment as well as the healthcare system as a whole. Now it shouldn't be our personal responsibility to get through a healthcare appointment without being harmed. The onus should actually be on these institutions to change, or even be abolished if that's what's necessary for things to change. So on a larger scale, I always ask myself, what can change? So here is a short list. Doctors should ask for your consent before touching you or performing an exam. Doctors should be fully trained in dealing with victims of sexual violence and abuse. Proper training could address the lack of compassionate bedside manner which could stop the continuation of harm from perpetuating in medical settings and this change would also encourage people to want to use the healthcare system instead of avoiding it due to trauma, which is a huge underdiscussed problem. We also need widespread education about the endocrine system and how hormones affect the body. This needs to come from inside doctors' offices, but also from a general sex education. We are finally breaking some ground on connecting the fact that birth control doesn't just shut down your ability to have a baby. It's messing with the entire endocrine system. And just because we have newer versions of birth control with lower dosages than the first generations does not necessarily mean that they are safer. In fact, third and fourth generation pills are some of the most dangerous. Patients who are informed before they go to the doctor are more likely to take a critical approach to being prescribed medication and are more likely to ask questions before taking something new. Something else we could do is be properly screened and tested before taking medication to reduce serious adverse events. For example, people with some inherited blood clotting disorders that use oral contraceptives may be at an increased risk of ischemic stroke, though not yet recommended. In the future, it may be advisable to screen patients for the genetic variants, factor V lead-in, and MTHFR before prescribing the birth control pill. A recent analysis out of the Netherlands showed that women who carried the factor V Leiden variant were 80% more likely to have an ischemic stroke than women without the variant. And women who carried the MTHFR genotype were 50% more likely to have had arterial thrombosis. So if confirmed, these findings could imply that carriers of factor V Leiden and MTHFR genotypes should not get oral contraceptives said researchers genotyping is relatively inexpensive easy to perform and could be a part of preventative care so those who can't use hormonal birth control should be properly counseled on how to use non-hormonal options like condoms and fertility awareness so this is just a really easy way to prevent people from having very serious blood clots. is to just screen them before they actually take the medication. So that's just not being done and uh, more and more information outside the U.S. is starting to mount that uh, it may be useful to do so. And the last sort of thing that I think can really change is that midwifery and full-spectrum doulas could be more legitimized as alternatives to gynecology and obstetrics. And when appropriate, they could be more integrated into our health care system. So midwives can and do provide a variety of health services that mirror gynecology, such as pelvic exams, pap smears, STD testing and menstrual extraction. A competent midwife can replace the need to visit the gynecologist for a regular checkup. And doulas can provide a variety of different types of counseling about the best choices for your particular health care needs and they also can be useful advocates inside gynecology offices and other health clinics. Now I'd be remiss if I didn't discuss how charting can help you navigate gynecology and healthcare. One of the problems with the modern state of gynecology and obstetrics is that we are largely outsourcing our decision-making. We are reliant upon the doctor's test to show us what's going on with our hormones, and we don't know when we ovulate, we don't have a way to read our hormones and see how they're doing generally. So all of this leaves us without much to make sense of our own bodies. And that is why we have to spend time engaging in a healthcare system that doesn't necessarily even want to help us. Charting with fertility awareness is amazing for many reasons, but one of the top reasons I recommend that everyone get educated on what it is is because it allows for more autonomous control over our decision making. So with an understanding of fertility awareness, you can actually read your hormonal profile Over the course of several cycles which gives you very stable data on how estrogen and progesterone are doing and it can also enlighten you to how other chronic health conditions interact with your hormonal or other potential triggers it's a specific bio profile that's unique to you and this data is extremely useful for you because you can then make decisions outside the healthcare system that improve your health And it also helps you make decisions with your doctor, as they can use the information to provide you with the most appropriate treatment or medication. A compassionate provider will take time to look at the charts with you and actually treat the charts as important data to consider. So if your doctor laughs at you or refuses to look at the information that you're showing them, that says a lot about who they are as a practitioner. Informed consent is something that we are really going to have to reconcile with in the future of reproductive justice. Liberal white feminism has been particularly focused on access, but it's missing other key components, and one of those is the concept of informed consent. We also need to acknowledge that sometimes reproductive health procedures do cause harm, or the experience is harmful in some way. We can't just slap some pink on it and call it awesome when many people don't have that experience at the gynecologist. They don't have that experience using birth control, or they don't have that experience having an abortion. So we shouldn't be afraid to talk about the downsides for fear that people who are misogynists and who want to control us want to use that information as support for their argument. But that's essentially what has happened with birth control. You know, years ago when I started this work, it was extremely taboo to talk about the downsides of birth control. And, you know, now things have opened up a bit more in part due to the activism of people who have been through the downsides and who are now speaking out about it and, you know, demanding accountability from the producers of these medications or devices and also accountability from the doctor's offices who prescribe them as being truly safe. And so I think we need to be real about the fact that the perceived authority of doctors and the perceived helplessness of patients is about an imbalance of power. And that power is very historical, and it's very persuasive. And so we're doing a disservice to people who menstruate by having them outsource some of the most important life decisions to people who are essentially paid off to not disclose the full picture of the risks and benefits. And so I think this is a huge problem. We also need to acknowledge that the effects of this medication do in fact change your life. You know, my own experience with birth control taught me this. On paper, I was having a pretty damn good year. You know, everything was going my way, yet I was seriously struggling. And this bled into my work, it bled into my relationship, my friendships, and even, you know, my relationship with myself. So if I had been fully informed beforehand that I was going to go through all of this, like, do you think I would have made the same decision? Because I know, I'm absolutely certain that I would not have. And so this all creates a really complicated picture of why we don't have body literacy in our culture today. Much of it has to do with this history of medicine, a disassociation from the workings of our own bodies and a pathologizing of our normal bodily functions like the menstrual cycle, you know, that we're in need of treatment or to be regulated. And so I think we're just awakening to all of these new possibilities within us. You know, we're just learning to create alternative systems and get them funded so that they're sustainable in the long term. And so we're, we're still very far away from unpacking all the different interlocking issues surrounding this topic of consent and the gynecologist and how to best serve patients who've dealt with medical gaslighting, medical racism, medical coercion, medical rape, and other despicable medical interactions. So I hope that, you know, this podcast was able to make things a little bit clearer for you, really help you draw your boundaries around this, and also to help you in the moment when you actually are negotiating or dealing with a practitioner, um, you know, to get the best, uh, you know, interaction out of the interaction. And, And that's something that we can all appreciate. So thank you very much for listening. thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, please share it with someone. You can find my show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. And if you can take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review me, I always appreciate that. Helps more people find this show. Helps more people get healthy. And this episode is brought to you by my fertility awareness education initiative, hashtag Me. You can go ahead and book a session with me by heading over to www.learnbodyliteracy.com and you can follow me on Instagram at famtaughtme to learn more. And don't forget to check out my new course, Breaking Up with Birth Control. Your support is always appreciated. This concludes episode 49 of the Someone Summer podcast. Good night.